Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Uh, this morning we are um, continuing our uh, short series called uh, What is Love? In uh, the middle of 1 Corinthians, there, um, there's this section in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 where the Apostle Paul kind of uh, unpacks the implications of the gospel for our most intimate relationships. And so last week we looked at, uh, at sex. And um, when I got home from church last week, my, uh, one of my boys said, Dad, you said that word way too many times today. So uh, we're moving on from sex. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to uh, last week's message online. But um, uh, this morning we're going to be talking about marriage. And so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be talking about marriage this morning, and then we'll be talking about singleness next week. Uh, if you're following along in one of those blue church Bibles, you can find uh, 1 Corinthians 7 on page 955. I'm going to read this uh, in just a moment, but you'll, you'll notice here um, that the, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this church in Corinth, he's responding to questions that they have sent. Um, and he's, he's answering, um, he's in dialogue with his church, he's answering questions that they've asked him. Um, but he's also responding to uh, some teaching in the church of Corinth where uh, some people were quoting Jesus and they were saying, um, <laughs> there was this saying in, in the church in Corinth where um, people were, were saying that, you know, um, Sex is so, sexual immorality is so uh, prevalent and so common that the best thing to do is just to, to not have sex at all, even in your marriage. And so he's responding to that by saying that is, that is, uh, that is ridiculous. But he's also, um, there's a point where he says, now I'm saying this, not the Lord. And then he comes back and he says, now the Lord didn't say this, I'm saying this. And um, some people have kind of misunderstood what Paul's saying there. Um, like he's just giving his opinion. But what's happening is the Lord, when the New Testament talks about the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. And so to understand what Paul is saying here, uh, you have to understand that he, he's saying, people are quoting, or I'm responding with the words of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus said this. This is what Jesus said. On the other hand, this is what Paul, the apostle, is saying. They are all in the Bible. They are all God's word. And so let's stand and let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, here's this quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession... Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If in, such case, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. And we'll pause there. Let's pray together. God, it's, it's hard to think of uh, maybe less romantic words that could be written about marriage. Um, and yet, as we come to your word this morning, God, we need hope and we need help and uh, we need wisdom from you. Uh, we need wisdom to understand how the gospel applies um, in our marriages. Uh, we need um, to have the idol of marriage torn down, whether we are married or single. God, we need to hear from you. Would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated, please. When we talk about uh, marriage, we are talking about something that has a success rate of only, the statistics are to be believed, about 50%. And that's why we need to talk about it. Because think, think I mean, let that reality set in for a minute. If every time a plane took off, 50% of the time it crashed, then we would all be rethinking our travel plans, wouldn't we? Or if 50% of the time we dropped our kids off from at school, they didn't make it home that afternoon, going to school would become a lot less popular. Or if 50% of the time you got into an elevator, you know, I have this recurring dream, nightmare about elevators that you get in and the bottom drop. Like if 50% of the time that happened, uh, we would start taking the stairs a lot more often, wouldn't we? And so the question is, where are we going to find real, hopeful, helpful, practical advice for our marriages? Because statistically, um, it's hard to get real precise numbers, I think, but it, it looks like the best numbers are that somewhere between 40 and 50% of marriages end in divorce. I can tell you that anecdotally, um, over the three years that my family has lived in this area, I've talked with many people about uh, what is it like to live in South Orange County. And I hear over and over again, often the first thing people say is, marriages are under a ton of pressure here. Met with principals at elementary schools here in Ladera Ranch, and, and I always ask, you know, what would a church that really loves and serves this community look like? What are the needs here? And, and principals have told me, marriages 
are under extraordinary pressure. And when a marriage comes to an end, it has ripples in, in, in the lives of children. Um, this is a big deal. Marriage is a big deal. And uh, the cost of living in Orange County, because it's so expensive, it puts so much pressure on our marriages. Um, but the reality is that if you're married, your marriage affects everything. The health of your marriage affects everything. It's been said that when, when your marriage is going well, that you can handle anything. And yet when your marriage is not going well, even the idea of just getting out of bed in the morning feels like a strain. And so how are we going to respond to that? Do we just need, you know, sometimes we want to respond to that with just getting better information. If we could just get men to understand the way women are wired and women to understand the way men are wired, then everything would just work better. Um, if we could just teach people what the Bible says about marriage, we'll get help. You know, this is what we need to do. If we could just help people understand their love languages, you know, if everybody just knew your own love language, right? Okay, do we just need more education? Or maybe we need more efforts. Um, you know, people just don't try as hard as they used to. Uh, maybe, maybe we just, hey, just switch off the TV, sit down with your spouse, have a conversation. Just put in some effort. Uh, or maybe some of us are just tempted to think that, um, you know, this is just hopeless. Either my spouse has to change, or i got to change my spouse. Well, what I want you to see this morning is that the Bible has good news for our marriages. And the Bible has good news for us. Um, well, let me just say this. I, I fully realize that not everybody here is married. Um, some of us are uh, single and we want to be married. Some of us maybe are, are recently divorced and, um, and, and have gone through that experience. Uh, we're going to look more specifically next week at what the Bible says uh, about being unmarried, about being sing single. But I also believe that it's true that um, in, in, first, or in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that marriage is a picture of the way that God loves the church, the way that God loves his people. And so whether you're a married person or a single person this morning, um, what the Bible teaches us about marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so it's a picture of the way, in, in some ways, all relationships uh, work best. And whether you are married or unmarried, it is good for you to live in a community with people who are in healthy marriages. Uh, it's good for you to have neighbors who have healthy marriages. It's good for you to be a part of a church where people have healthy marriages. And so I want you to look with me at three things that this passage sort of unpacks for us about about uh, the nature of marriage. And the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is this, that uh, the Bible gives us a new paradigm for marriage, a new, um, a new pattern for the way, mar the, the way we should look at marriage. And the paradigm is this. Uh, Paul says that if you are married, why did you get married? Let me... Let me Asked that question. I, I remember uh, when Ashley and I got married or got engaged, and we sat down with our pastor to do premarital counseling. And he said, first thing he said, I'll never forget this. He said, "Why? Are, why do you guys want to get married?" And I remember thinking, "Well, there's one really good reason that I don't want to say out loud to my pastor, 
Um, we're tired and we want to have sex. You know, we, I don't want to have to drive her home at the end of the night, but that doesn't seem like a great, the best reason. And I couldn't think of another good reason. So I, I think we just said, well, we've been dating for five years. We might as well get married, right? I had really no good answer for the question, why get married? But Paul hints at this several times in this passage, and he says it explicitly in verse 17. He says, if you are married, it is because God has called you to marriage. It is the way of life that God has called you to. Um, and so the, the paradigm that I want to give you for marriage is that marriage is a vocation. The marriage is a calling. It is a sacred calling to God, from God. Um, now we're going to talk next week about what that means for single people, but that, that can change. Um, that can change too. Um, but the, par the paradigm is this. If you are married, God has called you to marriage. And you should think of your marriage as a vocation, as a sacred calling from God. So what is a vocation? We don't use the word vocation a lot anymore. But um, the idea of vocation implies that God has uniquely equipped me and called me into a certain way of life to do certain things. Um, <clears throat> You know, we think about that in terms of a job. I might have different jobs over the course of a career. But if God has uniquely called me and equipped me into a certain career, then it's not just work that I'm doing or different jobs that I'm doing, but it's actually my calling. It is actually my vocation. Um, and in the same way, in the same way, what the Bible is saying here is that we should think of our marriage in terms of a vocation. So an analogy, think about this. If you were a monk... <clears throat> a nun, which I'm sure you were all just recently thinking about, what would it be like? Well, if you were a monk or a nun, uh, you, you'd have this idea that this is, this is a way of life that God has called me to. And it affects everything about my life. It affects where I live. It affects uh, what time I get up. It affects the way that I eat my meals. Um, it affects the way that I pray. Your vocation affects everything about your life. And so if you are married, what that means is that you go out into the world, not just as a person who happy, happens to have a spouse, but that you go out into the world as a married person. Your marriage affects your job. It affects your relationships. It affects the way you spend your money. <clears throat> it's a high, it's a beautiful picture that the Bible's laying out for us here as marriage, as a sacred calling, and, and the idea is that when your marriage is thriving and flourishing, it gives life to all, um, it gives life to everything that you do. But that raises the question, doesn't it, of what happens in the reality of our marriages when, when marriage is, you know, marriage is hard. <laughs> and what, what do we do when our marriages are struggling? What do we do when my marriage doesn't rise to that level? And it feels like, it's sapping life instead of giving life. Well, the second thing that, that you need to see in this passage is uh, that the, the, the three necessary ingredients for marriage. And I'm, I'm borrowing this from a friend of mine named Ricky Jones, who I heard preach a sermon on this passage. Um, and what he kind of unpacked from this, and I think this is uh, absolutely the wisdom of the Bible, that there are, there are three necessary components for a marriage, uh, for a beautiful marriage, a marriage that gives life, a marriage where you're not just simply surviving or grinning and bearing it, but a marriage where you're actually thriving and flourishing. 
And um, the three, three necessary, and let me just say this, these are not things that you should do. It's not hoops that you can jump through or, or things you can check off your list. These are three um, components that when a husband and wife are committed to the gospel, given enough time, they, they will happen and there can be and there will be life and hope for your marriage. The three necessary ingredients are this, for a marriage to have true, deep connection, to live up to the sacred calling of marriage, there must be sacrifice, and there must be vulnerability, and there must be trust. Sacrifice and vulnerability and trust. So what do each of those mean? Well, um, to, the, the, the first thing, sacrifice. For a marriage to work, there must be sacrifice. Uh, but Paul is saying this. He says, if you're married, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to your spouse. Maybe the most jarring, um, at least to our ears, thing Paul said in the passage I read a minute ago is that the husband has authority over the body of his wife. And the wife, likewise, has authority over the body of her husband. Um, that is a radical teaching. It was a radical teaching 2,000 years ago because in the culture of the Roman Empire, this isn't good, this is terrible, but women were viewed as little more than the personal property of their husbands. And so the idea that a man and woman would get married uh, for love was a foreign idea. And the idea that a, uh, a husband would be faithful to his wife in marriage uh, was a foreign concept. Uh, people didn't marry for love or for intimacy or for companionship. They married, um, they married to make a name for themselves. Uh, marriages were like business partnerships. Um, and there was a complete double standard in this world where a wife was expected to be faithful to her husband, and yet a man was free to, um, you know, to pursue sexual pleasure wherever he saw fit. He didn't, he didn't uh, look to his wife for intimacy. Um, he had mistresses for that. And the Bible comes along and says no. Uh, it says a woman has authority over, the hus over her husband's body. And vice versa, a husband has authority over his wife's body. And that means that a husband has obligations and responsibilities to his wife, and vice versa. And that was a radical teaching 2,000 years ago. And you know what? It's radical for us today, too. Because what Paul is saying is that in order for marriage to work, there has to be sacrifice. Now, why is that radical? It's radical because think about um, how you fell in love. When you first start dating somebody, um, when you first fall in love with somebody, why did you fall in love with them? Well, you fell in love with them because you liked the way that they looked. And being with this attractive person made you feel good about yourself. Or you liked uh, talking to them, and talking to them made you feel good about yourself. And so there, there's a sense in which that sort of initial phase of love and dating and, I don't know, romantic love, um, while it is good, it is, it is inherently selfish. Uh, we initially fall in love because we like the way that it makes us feel. I love this person because... I like the way that they make me feel. And um, what, what you love about that person is what they do for you and the way that they make you feel. And let me just be clear, that's fine. 
There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that has to happen, and the word that we use for that sort of love is dating. And if love is going to mature, that romantic, self-serving sort of love eventually has to die. I know that's not the most popular thing I'm ever going to say. Um, it's good to fall in love with somebody that you like being around, that you think is attractive, um, whose company you enjoy. But for mature, married, sacred vocation kind of love to grow, that kind of romantic love has to die. Uh, Tony Campolo is an author, and he, he, in one of his books, he talks about the experience of his girlfriend breaking up with him. And they were at the airport, and it was back in the day when you could go to the gate with people, and I think she's leaving because she's just broken up with him, and he's begging her not to leave. And he says to her, you can't leave me because I love you. I can't live without you. I don't know who I am without you. And she looked at him and said, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that this was all about you. So much of that early, you know, puppy love is, is really selfish. But real love is not selfish. Real love uh, is about sacrifice. It's about giving up something for the sake of the one that we love. And so in order for us to really love our spouse, this part of us that says that the reason I love you is because of what you do for me, that, that part of us has to die. And when it dies, um, self-sacrificing love can begin to grow in its place. Because here's the reality. When you are married to somebody, you see them all the time. Uh, when you're dating somebody, you only see them when you have prepared to see them all day. Uh, and you show up bearing gifts, and you've thought of like all of these witty things to say, and you essentially are just carrying on this marketing campaign for yourself. And then when you get married and you see them all the time, it's really hard to keep that marketing campaign going. I, it was like a week or two into our marriage when things that I had hidden from Ashley for five years of dating, I could no longer hide under the intense scrutiny of 24-hour observation. Um, you know, you can't do that. And when you're married, you see your spouse when they're not at their best. You see them when they are sick. You know, the first time you see your spouse throw up is just <laughs> a sight to behold. Um, the first, well, when you're married, I mean, yeah. I come home from work and it's been a long day and it's been hard, but I've been keeping it together. And then I come home and I can't keep it together anymore and my wife bears the brunt of that. Um, you know, you cannot keep up this, this illusion of perfection. And when you get to this point in your relationship where that kind of initial romantic love begins to pass away, uh, then you have a choice before you. Because when that happens, you can either decide to sort of just pretend like everything is okay and figure out how to endure in this relationship, or you can enter into this self-sacrificing sort of love. And if you go down that road, um, if you go down this road of self-sacrificing love, then real, um, lasting, mature love can begin to grow. The uh, Anglican Book of Church Prayer, or Book of Common Prayer, um, in the wedding service, uh, it, it says this, in, during the ring vows, I've never used the, these, these vows when I've officiated weddings, but I love these words. 
um, in the Book of Common Prayer, that the husband, when he give, or the groom, when he gives the his bride a, the ring, places it on his finger, and vice versa. They say these words: "With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, with all my worldly goods I thee endow in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." And I just think that is a beautiful picture of marriage as God intended it. Uh, I'm giving you this ring, and I am marrying you, but as I give you this ring, I'm giving you all that I am, and all that I have, you know, my worldly possessions, they are yours. What's going to happen at some point in your marriage is this. You are going to look at your spouse, and you are either going to say to your spouse, I need more than you are currently giving me, or you will look at them and say, you are giving me way more than I deserve. And if you go this direction and say, I need more from you, you're going down the path of saying, we are just going to figure out how to endure one another. Or we can go down the road of self-sacrifice and say, you are better to me than I deserve. And gratitude will take hold of your heart. And that will give you the ability to love your spouse in a self-sacrificing way instead of loving them just to make you feel better about yourself. Okay, sacrifice. Uh, i got to pick up the pace. Vulnerability. Um, being vulnerable means letting your spouse know who you really are. Vulnerability is about, is about taking off our mask and letting somebody see who we really are because the reality is this, that all of us to one degree or another, um, and some of, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's just... We don't, we don't know any other way. But we are afraid to let people see who we really are. And in, a, in the context of marriage, when I am, in a sense, wearing a mask from my, in front of my spouse, and my, my spouse loves me, they, they really can only love the mask. And what that means is that they fall in love with a person who is kind of me, but not entirely me, and when they love that part of me that is not the true me, instead of feeling love and connection, it makes me feel shame and isolation. Uh, think about it in a real simple way like this. If um, in school, if I cheat on a test, and I know that I've cheated on a test and I do well, and then I win an award for doing so well on this test, then everybody comes and congratulates me and says, wow, you did, that's, you did such a great job. And every one of those accolades actually makes me feel more isolated and more ashamed. In the same way, if we don't take off our mask and learn how to be vulnerable, and learn how to be honest with our spouse, that when our spouse is actually showing us love, what we will feel is more isolation and more shame. The past month or so has been... Um, one of the most, maybe the most difficult, stressful times in my life. And uh, we, when we made this announcement about a month ago that we were moving as a church to two services, it just like <sighs> opened up all kinds of stuff. And um, it's, it's, it's been stressful. It's been hard. I have heard people, um, uh, people have said true things about me that I don't want to hear. <laughs> um, our car has broken down twice. 
uh, it, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying this to like give you, um, like, we don't need to talk about it. Like, I don't need, I'm not asking for sympathy. What I'm, what I'm just trying to do is explain, like, this has been hard. And in the middle of it, what it has forced me to do is actually be vulnerable in a new way with Ashley. It has forced me to kind of give up the illusion that I know what's going on and that I'm in control and that I've got it all together. And it, oh, let me be clear, it's been absolute hell. <laughs> but at the same time, it has been beautiful because it has allowed Ashley to love me in deeper ways than she ever has before. And it has allowed me to experience her love in a new and profound way. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And yet I'm thankful for it. It's in uh, the place of vulnerability that true, deep, mature love can actually grow. Because without vulnerability, um, when our wife is, tr or when our spouse is trying to communicate love to us, all it communicates to us is shame. And the only way to remove shame is to look into the eyes of one who knows you and hear the words, I see you, I know you, and I love you. It's pretty quiet in here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, finally, trust. Um, if I'm going to experience deep love, if I'm going to be vulnerable with you, if I'm going to make sacrifices for you, then I have to trust you. Here's the problem with that. I am not trustworthy. And you are not trustworthy. Um, if by trust, I mean that I can trust you to never let me down. Because uh, the problem is often that two people get married and then, you know, eventually in a couple weeks or in a couple months or in a couple years, um, you've been let down by your spouse. Um, your spouse has failed you. Your spouse has hurt you. And the temptation at that point is to say, gosh, I guess I married the wrong person. The truth is that you always married the wrong person because no two people are compatible with one another. And the idea that there's one person out there that if I could just find that one person and marry that one person, that everything would go great and be easy, that is a fairy tale. The only way to know that you found the right one is when you stand in front of a congregation or before a justice of the peace and you say, I do. That's when you know that you found the one. But in order for deep, mature love to grow, you have to understand that you are going to let your spouse down and that they are going to let you down. And trust can begin to grow once the idol of the perfect spouse has died. Because by trust, I don't mean trusting that my spouse will never fail me. By trust, what I mean is trusting that though I know my spouse will fail me and that I will fail her, I trust that we will repent and that we will apologize and that we will have the hard conversation and we will work it out and that we will forgive. And as you do that, trust will grow, not because you expect your spouse will never hurt you again, but rather 
You begin to trust that even though you will hurt each other, you don't want to harm each other. And even though you will each let each other down, you begin to trust that you can forgive and that you can heal. And in the place of hurt and pain, real love will begin to blossom. So trust and vulnerability and sacrifice, those are the three things that any marriage needs in order to thrive and survive. So go do it, okay? <laughs> okay, what, what if we just ended the sermon right there? That would be an incredibly depressing sermon. It's all true. But yet the problem is I don't have the ability to make any of these things come out of me. Uh, because here's the truth. You can only give your spouse what you have received from someone else. And so... Uh, real quickly, the third thing I want you to see in this passage is the secret of marriage. And the secret of marriage is that, um, well, let me not tell you exactly what the secret of marriage is yet. You can only love your spouse, you can only give to your spouse what you've received from somebody else. Uh, this week I, I got an email from a, a kind of an acquaintance, a friend of a friend who's starting a new church in L.A. and he's fundraising, he's raising money, and he emailed me to ask if me or our church would support their church financially. And I sent him this response, and I said, hey, I've been where you are. I've raised the kind of money you're trying to raise. I can promise you that there are people who will get behind your vision and who will support you. But I cannot be one of them because I don't have any money. <laughs> and he emailed me back. He said, that's the nicest note that anybody has ever sent me. <laughs> I would love to give this guy money. I just don't have any. And so I can't give what I don't have. You can only give your spouse what you have, and you can only uh, sacrifice for them and be vulnerable with them and trust them if you have received those from somebody else. And so the, the secret to marriage is that you need another lover. Because if your marriage is based on the strength of your will and your ability to uh, make sacrifices and be vulnerable and trust your spouse even when they let you down, you will find yourself um, continually empty. And so you need to see that there is one who has loved you uh, more faithfully and more thoroughly and more completely than your spouse ever will. There's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16 where... Um, through the prophet Ezekiel, God is speaking to his people, his bride. And um, God says this. He says, as for you, uh, as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed you by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and grew you up because then you became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. 
And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil. And you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfected through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. That is God talking about his love for his bride. And if you are in Christ, that is the way that God sees you. You are unwanted, and he wanted you. He made you beautiful. He called you his own and enters into an everlasting covenant, a promise, a marriage with you. And it is only when you know that unending, deeply satisfying love of God for you that you will begin to love your spouse in a way that allows you to sacrifice for them in a way that allows you to be vulnerable with them because it's frightening, in a way that allows you to build trust with your spouse even when you have been hurt. Because you and I are like sponges. We're looking for anything and everything to fill us. And a dry and empty sponge will soak up and absorb anything that it comes into contact with. But if you, as that sponge, are plunged into the water of the love of God, carry a sponge across a room, it drips all over everything. And it's only as you are filled with the love of God for you that you then can, can become a person who goes into your marriage not looking to your marriage to make you happy, but in order to give yourself up Sacrifice yourself for the sake of the one that you love. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, the high calling and the beauty of these words. God, thank you that you have loved us. You've loved us when we didn't deserve it. You've loved us when we ran from you. You've loved us when... We turned our backs on you when we betrayed you, when we divorced you. When we have spurned you, you have come back to us and told us that we are wanted. And God, I pray that we would know that deep love of Jesus, that he was vulnerable for us, the sacrifice he made for us, that we would know he is the only one that we can truly trust to never fail us. And that knowing his love, we would be enabled um, to go out into the world full, whether we are married or single, 
not looking to our marriage to save us or to complete us or to fulfill us. That we would go into all of our relationships uh, offering the love that Jesus has given us. We pray in his name. Amen.